I'm doing a, for lack of a better word, a filler sermon. Last week we looked at what it means to be chosen by God. This week we will look at what it means to have a kingdom. What it means to be in the kingdom. And I am not going to look at James this morning. I will get back to that in a few weeks' time. So James has two things that he highlights about God's people. First, they are chosen. And second, they will be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. Those two things go together. And when I get to James again, I will point out how election relates to the kingdom. What is them? This is the question I'm going to answer purely from the Old Testament. And I know there are a number of New Testament verses that can answer that question very simply. But what I want to point out is that God laid the foundation of new kingdom, sorry, of kingdom theology in the, in the New Testament. He laid the foundation in the Old Testament. And what I will point out to you when we get to the New Testament is that there is a consistent theology when it comes to kingdom theology. Very simply, the kingdom is this. It relates to the reign of Christ in its most simplest form. The explanation of the kingdom is this. That Christ will reign over his people. Now, there are various um, tangents or branches that spans out from that. So some will say, yes, sure, I agree with you. It is the reign of Christ over his people, but that's in heaven. Or it is a spiritual reign, that it's not literal over a literal people, but it's just a term to speak about the lordship of Jesus Christ. I'm going to disagree with that. In fact, you will read that in a lot of commentaries as you pick it up after this. More often than not, you will hear people saying that the reign of Christ, the kingdom of God, is a spiritual reign or a spiritual kingdom. We also know that the kingdom relates to the kingdom of heaven, also known as the kingdom of God. That genitive relationship there is not positional, mean, meaning that it's not the kingdom in heaven. That's not what it means. It is, lo, it is um, source, a genitive of source. The kingdom that comes from heaven or a kingdom that comes from God is the best way to understand it. So the kingdom is not a kingdom that will be established in heaven even though it is from heaven. It's a kingdom that comes from heaven. So we should understand the kingdom as that which comes from God, comes from God, comes down, that will be established over his people, and now will add over all the earth. In effect, that is what the kingdom is. In other words, the kingdom will be something that is drastically different to what we've ever experienced on earth. The closest we are going to come to the kingdom is in the Garden of Eden. Now, to help us grasp the nature of the kingdom, let me give you four realities of the kingdom. And I want you to write this down or make mental notes of this because I want you to see that these four realities, they jump out. In almost every aspect of kingdom uh, uh, passages in the Old Testament. Number one, the kingdom must have a king. And so you say, duh, yeah, of course. Of course, it's in the name. Kingdom. A king rules over his dumb. Kingdom. Secondly, a kingdom must have a people and a realm. A king that reigns without a people is not a king. A king that does not have a realm is a defeated king. A realm is a defeated king. If you have a king who's in his castle, but his um, realm has been invaded, guess what? He's not reigning. A king will, a kingdom will have a king, and a kingdom must have a people and a realm. Thirdly. A kingdom must have a law. 
an ethic, a rule, or a government. All of them are synonymous. A kingdom must have a law, an ethic, a rule, or government. means they have to be governed by something and someone. Fourthly, the kingdom will be eternal. Now I'm breaking a, a bit away from what it must have. Because it doesn't have to be eternal, but it will be eternal. So those four things is what you will see in almost every passage that relates to kingdom theology. Number one, the kingdom must have a king. Number two, the kingdom must have a people and a realm. Number three, the kingdom must have a law, ethic, rule, or government. And number four, the kingdom will be eternal. So now that gives us a conceptual understanding of what the nature of the kingdom will be like. This means then that the kingdom will not be a kingdom if the king is not what? Present. The king must be present in order for him to rule over his people who are part of his kingdom. The king must be present to rule over his realm where his people live who are under his government. This kingdom will last as long as the king will last on his throne. Therefore, the kingdom will reflect the nature of the king. That's my sermon. That's all I'm going to be speaking about today. If you, if you forget everything, go back, listen to the introduction, and you will have what I want to say. Now, the nature of the kingdom will be determined by the nature of the king. That is fundamental. In history, uh, I read a book, I think it was last year, um, the Assyrians, was it the Assyrians, the Assyrians. It was just a, a history book on, it's non-Christian, a history of the Assyrians. It was very interesting. Every now and again, when a king, uh, a former king died, a new king would come into power. And that king in the Assyrian capital did not want to live where the previous king lived. So he took the entire people, the entire realm, and moved it to a different area. Why? Because he wanted his image and his splendor to be on display and not be related to the previous king. He didn't want them to think, oh, you know, this guy is lesser than that king. Look at what that king built. And so he built his own kingdom. Wherever the king went, the kingdom was. In many cases, they left perfectly functioning places, cities, abandoned. Just, they left it. And today, we look back in history and they find these marvelous cities that was just abandoned. And they don't know what to do with it. Well, back then, the kings didn't want to be related uh, they didn't want to be compared to other kings, and so they moved the entire realm to a different region so that they can build a, a, a visage of their own glory. They wanted the kingdom to reflect their glory. The nature of the kingdom, as it relates to Christ, will reflect the nature of the king. Remember that. Every earthly kingdom will be temporal. Every earthly kingdom will be temple. You saw it in the period of the monarchs, the period of the kings of Israel. And he died. Even David, the greatest king that they had, died. They look back to a time that David ruled over the nations. And they look back at that period thinking, can't we get back to that? We want a king, they said to Samuel, right? Well, God wanted them to have a king. But he said they have rejected me as their king. Now today, we don't live in a world that has many kings. I don't know about you, but I don't have a kingdom. My boys think they have, but I don't. I don't have a kingdom. What we do understand is government. Well, we do understand a, a legislative rule. And that is important as well, because God's moved the world from a kingdom reign, a kingly period, to a government-ruled period. <clears throat> In the Old Testament, we see both start to coincide, where there's a law and a government under a king. You will see that as we move on. 
Often when we speak about the reign of Christ, often when we speak about the kingdom, or for those dispensationalists, we will speak about the millennium reign of Christ. The Revelation chapter 20 passage. I'm going to take Revelation 20 out of the equation for now. Because that's an easy passage to deal with. But people say, hang on, hang on. Revelation is not actually literal. So you can't say that Christ will reign on earth over his people because Revelation just speaks of a spiritual reign of Christ. And it's not really for millennia. It's just a long period of time. Okay. When we get to the New Testament, I will deal with Revelation 20. But for now, I'm going to prove that without Revelation 20, there is sufficient evidence to prove that God is coming to earth in the person of His Son to reign on the earth over His people. The length of the reign is not important. The fact is where He will reign and how He will reign. So, Genesis chapter 1. Our foundation for understanding the kingdom begins in Genesis chapter 1. This may be a shock to some of you. And I know that there are differing views on the kingdom even in this church. So I'm not going to try to convince you. I want scripture to speak to your understanding of what the kingdom is. So if you have a struggle with end times theology, pay attention. Because this will be helpful for you. Genesis 1 verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, image uh, of God has been described in a variety of different ways. It, it, it's often said to be the, the, um, the dignity of man. It relates to the, the maleness and the femaleness of man. It relates to our capacity uh, to bring forth uh, children. It's been defined and described in a, a variety of different ways. The text actually tells us what it means. In our image and after our likeness. Here it is. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Two things to note. That word dominion means to rule over. In fact, it's explained later on in the verse. In the verse, over the fish. Dominion rule over, over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, and take note of this, over all the earth. So not just the fact that man will have capacity to rule over the animals, over every inch of created earth will be under his dominion, under his rule. I don't know about you, but I don't feel like we are ruling this world. Ever seen a lion? Are you going to go to the lion and tap it on his head? A cute little kitty. Yeah, your hand will be off if you do that. I don't think we have dominion over the fish of the sea. Have you seen somebody um, fishing? He has to fight unless it's a fish that size. I'm talking about a tuna or stingray or shark. We are not jumping in the ocean and say to little sharky, hey, buddy, just take me down around the coast. No, no. You will not come back from the coast if that's the case. We are not ruling over the fish or over the birds. I mean, the birds poop on our heads. Come on. We are not ruling over the animals yet. Besides, we're not ruling over every square inch of the earth. This is the promise God makes to Adam. In fact, this is the creation kingdom mandate. God creates man to have dominion. Keep that in mind. God creates man to have rulership over the earth. Over the earth. In fact, there's a play on words between Adam and Adama. Adam is Hadam, which is the man, and Hadama is the ground. And from the ground, God made Adam. From Hadamah, God made Hadam. There's a relationship between man and earth, which can never be broken. 
Man is related to the earth as God is related to heaven. It's inseparable. We are inseparable from this earth. In fact, when you die, where do you go back to? The earth. Even if they burn you, where do you go back? Back to dust. So God created man to rule. Look down in verse 28. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Don't stay in Eden. Cover the entire scope of the world. Rule it. Look at the next word. And subdue it. The word is a negative word as we understand it. It's the word bondage. And bring it into subjugation. Bring it under your authority. Two things that God gives to man. The capacity to rule over all the earth and the right to dominate everything that covers the face of the earth. Doesn't that make you feel like a king? But it doesn't feel like that, right? Because if you do gardening, you know the earth, when you plant the seed, it just doesn't give forth the fruit that you have planted. We had a peach tree for how many years now? 15 years, 16 years? We had eight years. We had, is it that long? It's longer anyway. We had one good season and we got one peach and we couldn't eat it. Just saying, if I'm raining and if we have dominion over everything, including the ground, how come are we fighting the earth? I mean, the herbs should bring, when you plant a, a, a basil plant, there should be nothing else that comes up. What's the weeds around it? Sorry, I'm just venting. Both these words, rule and dominion, are words that relates to kingship. In fact, I'm not going to do this because the, the theology of kingdom covers almost every book in the Bible. I can't do that. Every book in the Old Testament has got some element of kingdom, reign, and rule in it. So it's a vast subject. So if you want to take some time after the service today, read through the kings. They are given the right to rule, the right to dominate, the right to have authority in their kingdom. This is kingly language where in Genesis chapter 1, because God made man, with the capacity to reign and rule over the things that God has given him. So what Genesis 1, 26 20, uh, to 28 tells us is that man is created to have a, a measure of capacity to reign and rule. But then the fall happened. Genesis chapter 3. That capacity to reign and rule is still there, but it becomes a lot more difficult because of sin. Now instead of Walking next to a bear as your best friend, the bear wants to eat you. Now instead of walking next to a lion or a wolf saying, these are my pets like we do when we go to the States. We show them photos of us on elephants or next to elephants. Now that's my pet. No. We, we can't do that now, right? Unless you live in the boss and you, you raise a little baby elephant. He will still attack you. When he grows up. Man's reign in Genesis 1 is given a scope, is given a realm. You can reign and have dominion and have authority over the entire world. That's what God gives to mankind. The fall makes it harder, but the creation kingdom mandate still exists. That's why we have the right to kill animals and eat them. That's why we have the right to have um, household pets. That's why we have the right to till the ground and, and, and reign over our little kingdoms. But it's not easy. It's not exactly the way it should be. I call this the, the Adamic Kingdom Mandate. Yes, I make that up. And, and when I write my book, that will become a term. If I, I may write it in the kingdom. <laughs> I am tempted so much now to jump to the New Testament and show the significance of Genesis 1.26. Yeah, let, me, let me give you this little hint. There's only one man that actually fulfills this kingdom mandate. Only one man. 
Adam, the first Adam, failed. But there's a second Adam. Old Testament begins with an understanding that God will share His reign with man over the earth. So we have the scope. The realm. It is the earth. We have the nature of the kingdom. The kingdom will have rulership and will demonstrate authority, subjugation, reign over, to subdue. Secondly, foundation verse is Genesis chapter 1. Secondly, the kingdom has a king and a throne. A king without a kingdom is a weak king. A king without a throne is a defeated king. Kingdom without a king is no kingdom. A kingdom without a king is not a kingdom. Don't tell me that Christ reigns from heaven, but his kingdom is on earth. That ain't no kingdom. Scripture reveals that the kingdom will have both a king and a throne. Jump to Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah 2 shows that the expectation in the Old Testament was that there would be a king who will reign from Jerusalem. Look at verse 2 to 4. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of Yahweh. What is that? The mountain of the house. The mountain on which the house stands. The mountain of Yahweh, the mountain on which the house of Yahweh stands, is that in Jerusalem, also known as Zion, shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. So the highest peak, the highest mountain where everybody will go towards will be what? Jerusalem. There's something drastic has to happen for Jerusalem to remain and everything else will be flattened. Something drastic has to happen in order for that to take place. So there's a time stamp here. In the latter days, it shall come to pass that that will be the case. So these things have already taken place and as a result of the things that causes the mountain to be uh, um, lifted, as a result of the actions, the mountain will be lifted up will be higher than anything else. So something catastrophic takes place prior to, to this. Notice the effect of his reign at the end of the two. And all the nations shall flow to it. That is weird language. Something, when something flows, it flows from a source, right? From a mouth to a valley flows down. But here, there is a change in direction. The nations will flood into, is the idea, the place where God reigns. The nations will come to Jerusalem, will come to the mountain. All nations, like we said earlier, and I was thinking about the theology of that song. All nations, are they buying down now? If Christ is reigning, this should be true. If the king is on the throne, if the king is on the mountain, in the house of Yahweh, then all the nations should be flooding towards Israel. Verse 3, And many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of God, of the God of Jacob. Hmm. Again, the picture is something will be erected on the mount that they will go to. Why? That he may teach us his ways. In other words, that his law, his truth, his government will, will be ours. That we may walk in his path. For out of Zion, where Zion, where the mountain is, where the house of the Lord is, shall go the law and the word of Yahweh from 
Jerusalem, just in case you missed it. It's speaking about the location from which the king will reign. From Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. Hmm. So in order for him to judge between the nations who are coming to Jerusalem, where does the king need to be? In Jerusalem. The king needs to be present in order for him to judge between the nations. If they come in to settle a dispute, he needs to be there to settle that dispute. It's going to be such a time that war would no longer exist. Look at the middle of verse 4. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares. These are the nations who wanted to kill Israel and wipe them out prior to this. Now, instead of wanting to kill them, they're going to be working the grounds. In fact, it says that later on. And their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. The presence of the king would so drastically reshape the world that there would be no longer need for war. Why? Because there will be peace. When the king is on his throne and he reigns over his people, he will execute peace on the earth. This can also be seen in Isaiah chapter 9. Look at verse 6. We know this to be the Messiah. We know this to be true of the one who was born in a manger. Listen to what it says. For unto us a child is born, for to us a son is given. That is the first coming of Christ. And that is important. Son, the child is the son. God chose a masculine child to be born. Why? Because the position of the king is that he is what? Masculine. Yes, gender matters to God. He has to be a man that would be born to a woman, a child. He has to be a man Child, masculine child. Why? Because he will reign as king. You can't have a female reign as king. I don't care what you say. I don't care what you believe about gender. A female can never be a man. Wrong, wrong, wrong sermon. Next, what it tells us is that when the son is born and after he is, is in this world, something will happen. But this is not the immediacy of what will take place. What you find in the Old Testament is that the first coming and the second coming are often joined. It's mentioned together. Why? Because if he comes firstly, he will also come secondly. I know that's bad language. You get the point. When he comes the first time, guess what? He's going to come the second time. That's, what, that's why it's never separated. And so, the second aspect of his coming is demonstrated in the second part of verse 6. How do I know that? Because of the last part of chapter 7. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. The government is related to him. He will carry the law. He will own the government. Not the governments of the world. No, he will execute a government. He will have the right to legislate the right to reign and rule. He will legislate what happens in his kingdom. That is when it, what it means when he speaks about the government. He sets the rules of the kingdom. He sets the standards for his kingdom. The government shall be upon his shoulder. Has Christ ever displayed reign and rule over the governments of this world? No. Has he ever legislated government that all live by every nation. No, not yet. But that time is coming. In fact, it tells us, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Nate Technorivus, Prince of Peace. Huh. Do you know why I know that this is kingdom related? Because when Christ was on earth, what did he say? I do not come to bring peace, but to bring a what? Sword. The second time he comes, he comes to bring what? Peace. 
justice and equity. Yes, with judgment. But he will establish peace, peace from the mount in Jerusalem. How do I know that? Because the text tells us that. There will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom. Well, there you go. Absolutely crystal clear. When this government will be executed, when this reign and rule will take place, not when, but what it will look like. Verse 7, the beginning of verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. When he reigns, no end to his peace. No end to his government. Because he will sit on the throne of David and over his kingdom. Take note of those prepositions. Sit on the throne over his kingdom. On the throne over his kingdom. When he's spiritually ruling, he's not on the throne. And he's not over his people. He has to be literally seated in the throne of David. That's the expectation in the Old Testament. Look at the last part of verse 7 with justice and with righteousness from this time. What time? The time he takes his seat in Jerusalem. From that time forward and forevermore, he will reign. The zeal of Yahweh of hosts will do this. In other words, this is a done deal. You can count on it. He's going to come, he's going to take his seat, and he will reign. The kingdom is his, and he will reign from Jerusalem. A reign over all the earth. Not only over the saints, but over every square inch of this world. Christ is not on the throne of David. Not now. Because there is no literal throne of David in heaven. The literal throne of David is in Jerusalem. Not yet. It's not there now, but it will be when it's re-erected. Connected to the throne and the kingdom is the execution of justice and righteousness. Now I'm going to mention this now and I'll get back to it in a little time. Why does he have to execute justice and equity if it's the eternal state? Meaning that we are now glorified and living forever after the time that he has spent on earth. If this is the eternal state, if, if this passage is speaking about the eternal state, why does he still have to execute justice and equity? You don't need that if he is reigning eternally after the time of the earth. So clearly, this has to relate to a time period on earth where the reign and rule of Christ to execute justice and equity is still Required, And I will bring a little bit more clarity on that in a moment's time. This tells us four truths about the kingdom. The place of the kingdom. Where will he reign from? From Jerusalem. The throne of David. Don't miss that. The nature of the kingdom will mean that it includes the right to execute justice and equity. And you will see that that is over the wicked for the sake of the poor. And the beginning of his reign indicate, is indicated by his ascension to the throne. So he only begins to reign when he sits on the throne. Is Jesus king now? Yes, he is. What does Matthew say? To you shall be born Jesus, who is what? King of the Jews. He's born a king because he's always been a king. When they rejected God as king, they rejected the Messiah. He will reign from Jerusalem and he will reign over all the earth and he will reign forever. That is what we see in the Old Testament. The kingdom has a king and the king has a throne. Now if we change this, if we change our hermeneutic to say, well, Yes, I believe in a literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutic. I believe in that. But this is not literal. 
This is a spiritual reign. Or it is spiritually fulfilled in Christ. Do we not lose the literal, historical, grammatical hermeneutic? Do we not lose the right to say that it means what it says and it says what it means? If Christ, let me put it this way, if God says he will take his seat on the throne of David, if God promises that, guess what's going to happen? He will take his seat on the throne of David. Because God cannot lie. If God is making a promise to the nation of Israel, this will be the sign that your king has come when he ascends to the throne of the greatest king that you have known. If he does that, know that the kingdom has begun. The king came from the throne, which is in Jerusalem, over his kingdom. Thirdly, the government or the nature of his kingdom will be executed as a righteous reign in an unrighteous world. Think about that. It will be a righteous king who will execute a righteous reign in an unrighteous world because he still has to correct wrong. Hmm. I know I already touched on this in Isaiah chapter 9, but look at chapter 11. In the first part, we see again the expectation of the coming Messiah. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. And this points forth to Matthew chapter 3, I believe, and uh, what's it, Luke chapter, um, Luke chapter th- 2 or 3. And a branch from his shoot shall bear fruit. And the spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him, and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Verse 1 and 2, we can clearly link that to the first coming of Jesus Christ. You go to the New Testament, you will find quotations that relate to this. In fact, Jesus says that the spirit of the law of the Lord is upon me. Quoting both Isaiah 6 and Isaiah 11. But look at verse 3. Something different is at work here. And his delight shall be in the fear of Yahweh. He shall not judge by what he sees. The judgment that is taking place in this world, and if you go back during the time of James and during the time of the apostles, Judgment was made by what they see. Remember the context of James. Making false judgment or unrighteous judgment purely by what you see and hear. The shoot of Jesse is contrasted to what what is normative in the world. He shall not judge by what he sees or decide disputes by what he hears. Now there is the theological truth that Christ hears all things. Pray, and when we pray to God, the Father, we pray to Him. He hears it. But that's not what it's talking about. It's when they come to Him so that He can settle the dispute. He won't judge what He sees or judge by what He hears. The eyes and the ears are used here for a very specific reason to show the nearness of the shoot of Jesse. He's right there to justice. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor. If we are eternal state, or if we are t- speaking spiritually now, how come we have poor as we understand poor? So something has to be present. Uh, uh, the king is present, and there is still the presence of poor people. Again, verse 4, and he... Uh, decides with equity for the meek of the earth. This is not from heaven. This is on the earth, over the earth, and not in the eternal state. I think it's pretty clear. Look at the nature of his execution of his justice. He shall strike the what? Earth with the rod of his mouth. That is figurative language to speaks about the execution of his law and his justice. When he speaks, it is done. The, the law, the, the, the justice has been executed. 
and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Hmm. So you have the wicked present, so you have the king present, and you have a righteous realm over which he reigns and rules. But people who are living during that time still are wicked and still have the capacity to die, not the eternal state. Verse 5, righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. What will mark the son of righteousness? What will mark the shoot of Jesse? His righteousness and his faithfulness to the truth. That is how he will judge this world. Now, verse 6 onward, just in case you are thinking that this is a time past, this is has already taken place, I'm just going to read it. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goats. The calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. Hey, hey, come on, man. That is absolutely clear. There is nothing in history that equates the explanation here. Do you remember a time when the wolf and the lamb were besties? I don't believe, you know what a bestie is, right? Do you know of a time where the calf and the lion and the child is leading both of them? I don't know if there's anything like that that has ever happened because nothing like that has ever happened. There was only two people in the Garden of Eden. The only time that it could have taken place was in that moment in Eden. And it did not. So then this is a time where things have drastically changed. Getting ahead of myself. It's the excitement. So let me move on. There's a reign of the king who's in Jerusalem. All of these verses are cumulative in, in Isaiah. He's in Jerusalem, reigning from Zion, from the house of God, over his kingdom, being with his people, reigning over his people and the wicked. So this time of his reign will be where a righteous king, holy king, just king, faithful king is on the throne, but we will still have wicked people living. When he came the first time, when he came as a babe, he didn't come to reign and rule. He came to what? Die. He didn't come to reign and rule. Remember what they wanted to do when he came in Jerusalem? They laid out the palm trees, which is this week, right? In history. They laid out the palm trees and they were ready to make him king. And what did he say? Oh, Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem. They didn't get it. I didn't come as the king. I didn't come to reign and rule. I came to die. The Zeph Zechariah chapter 9, I think it's Zechariah chapter 9, speaks of the lowly entry of the one who would come to die for his people, not the one who would come to reign on the throne of David. Not the same time. Let me move on. Verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse, so he... Hinging back on the fact that we are speaking about the same time, same person, same period. The root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples of him. Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Wow. The nations will come to him. Why? Because he's on earth. They will come and ask, inquire of him for wisdom, for, for righteous judgment. Interestingly, it doesn't say that the nations are saved. But they come to him, they submit to him because he subjugated the nations under his rule. He's executed righteous reign over the earth. I know where most of your dispensational minds are going. And, and rightly so. We want to go to Matthew 24, 25 and Revelation 20, 19 and 20. But this is nowhere found in the New Testament where Christ acts as an arbitrator between nations. Nowhere in the New Testament does he make peace between the nations. 
This is not the first coming. Go to Psalm 2. I think I told you we're going to be jumping around. We are almost through part of my sermon. Psalm 2. I think, based on what I said, this should be clear. Why do the nations rage? And if you take, took note in Isaiah chapter 11, you have the first coming and then the second coming right after each other. Take note here as well. Why do the nations rage? People plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers they counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed. His anointed is the son. Saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away the cords from us. This is quoted in Acts chapter 4, where the nations turn against the sun. I think it's Peter that says, well, why do the nations rage? Lord, this is what, what uh, the prophet, um, uh, I think it's David, it's Acts chapter 4, 25, yes, where David ascribes a psalm to, to, where Peter ascribes a psalm to David. So the first part relates to his first coming, but there's a second aspect of this that looks forward. How do we know? Verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord holds them derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. As for me, so this is the, the, the rejection of God as king. This is the, the, the building up of um, the, the attack on, on his people. And verse 6, as for me, I have met my king on Zion, my holy hill. If you paid attention... In every passage from Isaiah up till now, I mentioned Zion, Holy Hill, and the temple. As for me, I have set my king. Where does the king sit? On a throne. Where is this throne? On Zion. Where is Zion? My Holy Hill. Where is that? Jerusalem. Same context. Same meaning. Verse 7. I will tell of the decree. And Yahweh said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. Take note of this. And the ends of the earth your possession. So the king in Zion on the throne will reign over what? All the earth. Over every nation. Literal in Jerusalem. And he reigns over all the earth. We have not seen this yet. Oh, come, Lord Jesus, come. Verse 9, and you, the Son, will break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. When he comes, he will strike them with fear. Why? Because he comes to execute justice. For those of you going through hardship now, justice is coming. The vengeance of God in Christ will come. So persevere. Now a warning to the kings of the earth. And I wish our government would be able to hear this. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Serve Him with fear. Verse 12, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. For those who are saved are safe from his justice and his execution of his righteousness. But those who are not, they will receive his justice and the execution of his righteousness. This is future. We haven't seen this yet. Solomon understood this well. And you can write Psalm 20, 72 down as a reference. It echoes what David says in this psalm. I'm going to skip over that. But I want to highlight 12 through to 14. Again, the dominion of the son, the king, is in view here. Verse 12 says, He delivers the needy when he calls the poor and him who has no helper. From a point, verse 14, and violence he their life 
and precious is their blood in his sight. What context? The dominion of the king on the throne. There will be those who will try to kill God's people. There will be those who will still be wicked and living during his day. But, verse 8, may he have dominion from sea to sea and the river and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his en- enemies lick the dust. There will be a righteous king over an unrighteous people. He will reign and he will rule over all the earth and over all the nations of the earth. This is such a comfort. We are seeing injustice being ex- executed in our day and age. The government is making unjust laws. I agree with the pastor that in this week said that the church will suffer under this new mandate. The church will suffer. If we ask you guys to demonstrate your vaccine passports, half of you will probably not come to church, right? Because you don't agree with it and some of you are not vaccinated. That is unjust. For those of us who are going through this, persevere. This is the time of perseverance. This is not the time of reigning and ruling. Remember what Paul said to the Corinthians? I have to go to the New Testament. Are you reigning already? Are you already uh, kings? Are, 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 are you already in the kingdom? Well, count us in. Help us to get there. In other words, no, you're not. This is not the time for reigning and ruling. This is the time for perseverance. This is the time for endurance. Isn't that what Jesus is in the Sermon of the Mount? They will persecute you. Persevere for my name's sake. Don't miss this. This is the time when the king will be on the throne, but wicked people will still be alive. Now, chapter 65. I'm going to end on this. I'll end on a highlight. Isaiah 65. The fourth aspect is that the reign of the king in his kingdom will mimic the four Edenic times. Make sense? It will look like it was in Eden. Isaiah 65 verse 11. For behold, this is the goal of where things are going. I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. So the people that relates to Jerusalem shall be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall uh, no more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. That's the goal. This is where I'm going. I'm creating a new Jerusalem and a new earth, uh, heavens earth and a new Jerusalem. Now, verse 20. No more shall be in it an infant who loves but a few days. Pause there. Joseph will no longer die young in his kingdom. Anybody lost a child? Remember the sadness, the pain, and the suffering of that time? Not in the kingdom. That is why there will be no weeping. That is why there will be no suffering in that sense. Because a child will not be murdered anymore. No more abortion. No more abortion. Amen. The wickedness of this world will be stunted in his reign. Let's read further. An old man who does not, so there will be no more, an old man who does not fill out his days. So people will live long. How long? Well, he tells us. For the young man shall die a hundred years old. Did you catch that? A young man will be a hundred. Hang on, guys. Let's think about this. When somebody reaches a hundred years old, when we've got family 
um, Gilbert knows, somebody who's 94 now, right? 92. She's not exactly considered young, right? I mean, you celebrate the next year because it's a big thing. When you in the kingdom die a hundred, they're going to be thinking, oh, shame. He's dead at a hundred. He missed out on life. A sinner, wait a minute. So you live long, but there are still sinners present? Yes. A sinner, a hundred years old, shall be cursed. So a sinner will also live long. So you've got those people who are God's people live long. And then you have sinners present who will also live long. This has to be on earth. Why? Because of verse 21. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. Why does he say that? Because in times of war, you build houses and then what happens? They get invaded. They get taken away from you. You plant vineyards and what happens to your vineyards? They get dispossessed. Not during the kingdom. For like the days of a tree shall be the days of my people. Shall the days of my people be. Chosen shall long enjoy the works of their hands. They shall labor not in vain. That is pre-creation, pre-sorry, pre-fall period. Experience. Or bear children for calamity. If you're in time of war, you don't really want to bear children because it's a time of calamity. No more. Why? Because it's peace on earth. Before they call, I will answer. Why? Because he's here with his people. Why? While they are yet speaking, I will hear. Verse 25, just in case we miss this. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. And I know there's some smarty pants that say, yeah, but lions eat grass when they are sick. No. It, there's a change of diet that's taking place here. They will no longer eat the ox, but they will eat ox eats. Grass. Hey. And dust will be the serpent's. The interesting thing is, the serpent's judgment remains. Think about that. He will always be cursed, even during the reign of Christ. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says Yahweh. I have to end up. It's, it's, a, it's a huge subject. What you see in Isaiah 65 is the effect of the presence of the king on the earth. When the king is present, he suspends the effect, the immediate effect of the fall. What was it? Death. He suspends that they will still die, but he lengthens life. So that a hundred years would be abnormal. Which means we will be living much longer. Which means the period of his reign has to be long in order to account for long life. Make sense? You can't have a short reign or a spiritual reign when people are living long periods of life. It has to be a literal reign that will accommodate literal days in the kingdom. What you see in the Old Testament is that there's a prophecy of a king who will be on his throne, in his kingdom, in Jerusalem, over his people, on earth, and the presence of the king will so drastically change the entire shape and scope of this world that even the animal kingdom is affected. A man will be on earth that will reign over all the earth, even the animals. Doesn't that sound like Genesis 1, 26 to 28? And I will give you dominion over all the animals on the face of the earth. There is one man that actually fulfills the Genesis 1, 26 mandate to reign and rule over this earth. And that is who? Jesus Christ. The Old Testament is filled with promises of the coming kingdom. Are you part of it? 
When they looked to the kingdom, they did not think of a spiritual kingdom. They did not think of a heavenly kingdom. They thought of a kingdom that was on earth. When James says heirs of a kingdom, he's not thinking of a spiritual kingdom, of a, a kingdom that is somehow dis distinct and removed from man. It's a kingdom that we will participate in. Everything gets affected by the reign of the king. Wednesday you can come with all your questions and I will not be able to answer them. <laughs> so uh, give me some time. There's one more aspect that I have to cover and then we'll get into the New Testament. So we'll look at that next time. The only way that you can become a kingdom citizen is to have Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. If he's Lord and Savior of your life, you are a citizen of his kingdom. Without him as Savior, there is no kingdom promise for you. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful to you for the beauty of the theology of the kingdom in the Old Testament. It is vast. It is wide and it is comprehensive. It is sufficient for us to know that Christ will ultimately reign and rule over the earth. It is sufficient to give us understanding that he will change the very nature of how things are conducted on the earth. Pray for those who do not fully understand this or grasp this. Lord. Pray for grace upon their lives. Pray for those who are not in the kingdom. Help them to become your kingdom children. Pray, Lord, as we continue to study this, that our minds and our hearts would be changed and encouraged to know that the king will execute righteousness and equity. We don't see it now, but we will see it in his day. Magnify yourself for your name's sake. Amen.